Sometimes I have a very long porch. It's called an introduction. I can still hear Steve Lawson telling me, get off the porch and get into the text. Well, the porch this morning is going to be part a main part of the text because I'm going to uh, rehearse some theology and then we'll come down to the purpose of parables. This purpose of parables is twofold. It is to reveal and is also to conceal. And it is the concealed part that causes much trouble in the human mind to try and say, how can that be? If a parable, parabole, parabolo, to throw or cast alongside, to take something that we are familiar with, and in the first century, that certainly involved agricultural metaphors and analogies and something that they would understand so they could understand the application of that, and yet how could that possibly be to conceal truth at the same time? So I'm going to begin with thinking through both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and then we will bring that and show how the purpose of parables is exactly like that. So the purpose of Jesus' parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. God has revealed the fact of his existence in Scripture. He's given it to us in two ways. In general revelation, you look out in history and providence and creation. And he's also given us propositional truth in the Holy Scriptures, the sacred writings. He's given us, revealed to us, truth in narrative form. The statements in the Bible are the primary foundational and foremost proofs by which people must believe that he does exist. The Bible makes God knowable to us. Man may truly know God. The Bible tells me that the God that I cannot yet see with the visible eye I can know him and know him intimately and personally by believing the revelation of Scripture. The classic statement is this, God is truly knowable, but he is not exhaustively comprehensible. One day, every person who, like Abraham, has believed the revelation that God has given to them, they have been declared righteous in the sight of God. And then sanctification, we are being infused with personal righteousness from God. Every person who is justified will be sanctified, and one day we will be glorified, and we will be in heaven with the saints of all the ages, but we will never exhaustively know God. Six billion years from now, we will still be learning and still being amazed at the God who has taken on human flesh and come to save sinners. 
So here is some theology, some theology, not all, but some about the true God of heaven above. God existed before all things, and through him all things exist. They exist for his glory. And as Yahweh, the covenantal name for God, he is self-existent. He has life in and of himself. And this one, God is Lord of all. He is the Adoni Adonai. Adon means he's the master. He's sovereign. He depends on nothing. All things depend upon him. He is the source of everything, and he does as he wills. His counsel is the basis of everything. He needs nothing. He is all-sufficient. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's independent in his mind, his will, his counsel, his love, and his power. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's that word reign right in the middle of sovereignty. And his sovereignty means that God's is has an absolute rule and authority over all things, completely. His sovereign will is a reference to the fact that God's choices and decisions are in no way constrained by factors outside of himself, and God has the right, the prerogative, to choose without being answerable to anyone or anything outside of himself. Just a few texts, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. The pagans say, where, did, where is your God? We can see ours. We've constructed them. And the psalmist says, oh no, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Your, your gods, they, they have hands. You've made feet with them. You, you can see them. But our God is in the heavens, the true God. Nebuchadnezzar got that message after being out there and his mind and reason were finally returned to him after his arrogance. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed El Elyon, the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, why have you acted this way? And then, parallel to that truth, is human responsibility. Humans are held accountable. We're accountable for our response to God's revelation and His demands for us to repent of sin, believe, trust, and obey God. We either get his blessing or we refuse to respond 
in trust and obedience. We disbelieve, we deny, we disobey God, and we suffer the consequences. Some begin to think that our decisions and actions don't make much difference or don't have much effect on the course of events. But while God is sovereign, we are still responsible for our actions that have real, temporal, and eternal consequences. Distortions of the doctrine of divine sovereignty result in idleness, laziness, indifference, blame shifting for sinful conduct. Rightly understood, the doctrine of divine sovereignty promotes trust in God and responsible thinking and action. Two distortions. Some have said to me, God would never impose his will upon my will. I say, that's a denial of divine sovereignty. Ask Pharaoh about that one. Others have so stressed divine sovereignty that they have said to me, we are just like puppets here upon our time, upon planet Earth, doing whatever God has so determined. I say that's a denial of divine sovereignty and parallel with human responsibility. Why would there be all the imperatives in the Bible if we don't have responsibility? Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and I want to show these parallel truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. I'm going to start there. We know that Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy second, namas law, it's not a second law, but it's a repetition bringing the law of God to the people's mind right before they pass over into the promised land. You are going to need to respond to God, and you need to think correctly about what he has said. And so it begins. And what does he begin with? He begins with human responsibility. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God. How much? With all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today now watch this for your good for your good you go back to the garden what was that single restriction given to Adam and Eve you have you can eat of all the trees of the garden but there's just one trust me you eat of that one you'll die and along came the evil one who had already fallen, at least with a third of the angels of heaven, now locked into hatred of God forever. And they basically said, you're not going to die. God isn't as good as you think he is. Believe me, when God gives commandments there, and they are both restrictions and there is freedom but this is for our good, and Moses is reminding them, this is for your good. Now, with that responsibility, right after that comes affirmations of divine sovereignty. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and earth. 
and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Now, I'm not going to follow the ESV here. It begins with the word. It translates this Hebrew word as yet, but it also means only, and it's joined to only to your father. So the Lord set his heart in love only to your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, above all the nations, God has chosen you as you are this day. Now watch this. We're right back to human responsibility. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. There's a responsibility. goes right back to sovereignty again. Why should you do this? Because the Lord your God, he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. The word, therefore, Lord of lords. He's the, he's the Adonai of Adonai. He's the, the word Adon in, in Hebrew, when used of the true God, indicates that God possesses supreme sovereignty and ultimate authority over all things external to himself. Now, the term is used of humans. It doesn't, and then it doesn't mean absolute sovereignty. Uh, humans address a person who is superior in person or in rank, and they use the term adon. But when it has that ending on it, adonai, it refers to the supreme sovereign Lord of the universe. The Lord your God is God of gods, He's Lord of lords. He's the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or takes a bribe. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now watch this. We're right back to human responsibility. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, serve him, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He's your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So there we were. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Both are there in the text. But it is that one particular verse, for the Lord your God is God of gods. He's Lord of lords. He's master of masters. He's Adonai Ha-Adonim. He is sovereign. I hold to what is called theological compatibilism. Don Carson rightly comments, Biblical writers in both the Old Testament and New Testament have on the whole fewer problems about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility than do many moderns. They don't see divine sovereignty and man's responsibility as antitheses. In short, 
They are compatibilist. And therefore, they juxtapose, just like we just saw, the two themes with little self-conscious awareness of any problem. In the Bible, if not always in Christian theology, you will find some theologies that deny this, but the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of God's image bearers go hand in hand. And then I agree with David Turner where he says, finite humans will never fully understand the interplay of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But if you deny one or the other, you are outside of the bounds of Scripture. They are both there, and they are both true. And I must bow before them, the sovereign God, and recognize that He holds me and He holds you accountable for the way you think, the reasons why you act in a certain way, everything about us, God holds us responsible. And we will come to Matthew 13, 11 through 15, and its citation of Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, and it's one of the strongest biblical affirmations of God's prerogative to reveal himself as he sees fit. As a matter of fact, he will quote Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, quoted five times in the New Testament that is an affirmation of this. It's a strong affirmation of the responsibility of man to believe God and the consequence of chronic refusal over and over again, a refusal to believe God that may result in judicial hardening of an already hard heart. Be very careful about hardening your, hardening your heart over and over to the truth of God's Word. So, turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we will look at this purpose of parables by putting, first of all, the parables in perspective. I put up there the eight parables in Matthew chapter 13. There are parables to the multitudes in chapter 13, the setting is this. Jesus has just come out from a house, I take it there in Capernaum, that we go back to 46 and 50. His parents were, and brothers and sisters were on the outside, and the house was so crowded, and he's inside teaching, and they want to take him away because there's something a little strange about Jesus. Uh, he's, he's not quite normal, the things that he is doing. He's not eating like he should. And his brothers and his sisters don't yet believe in him. Now Mary has some special revelation, and so they pass along a word to Jesus on the inside, and they said, look, you've you got a priority out here. You need to respond to your mother, your brothers, your sisters. Joseph evidently is not on the scene. Many assume, although we're not told explicitly, that he has already died, and Jesus says, looks around inside the room. He says, you want to know who my family is? 
here, here are my brothers, here are my sisters, here's my mother. It's those who do the will of God. And to do the will of God, you have to believe the will of God. He goes outside, and now he sits down on a boat by the sea. Great crowds come to him, and he told them many things in parables. And the first one, and most important one, is the parable of the soils. And then there's a question and an explanation there. Now, watch the parables that he tells them. After, go to 2, verse 24, the second parable, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, now ask yourself the question, who is the them? Verse 31, he put another parable before them. Who's the them? Saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Verse 33, the shortest one, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Now watch this. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. And he said nothing to them without a parable. In other words, what Matthew has done is he then, in verse 36, he left the crowds, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us not only the parable of the weeds, but also the parable of the soils. In other words, Matthew chapter 13, 10 through 16, or 10 through 17, Matthew takes, it occurs later, but he inserts it at this point because he wants to emphasize this explanation and also emphasize divine sovereignty and human responsibility and begin to explain how all of this relates to the parable of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And then he will give the later parables to his disciples. Now it's also helpful to compare how Mark and Matthew do this. It's the same occasion, very clearly. You look at the context in Mark 4 and Luke chapter 8, and Mark will begin, same thing, mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He'll give the parable of the soils, and then he too will relate the purpose of parables and relate it back to Isaiah chapter 6, 9 through 10. But notice the parables that he gives. There's the parable of the lamp that Matthew doesn't include, the parable of the growing seed, the parable of the mustard seed. And then it says, with many such parables, he spoke to them, but he only explained all things to his disciples. In other words, we don't have all of the parables that Jesus said. What Matthew is doing and Mark and Luke, they are selecting some of the parables that Jesus spoke for their purposes. And Matthew does the same thing, and he inserts this section there, even though it was asked at the end, after he's begun to speak the parables only to his disciples, because he wants to emphasize this. Now watch how Luke does this as well. Parables of the mysteries of kingdom of heaven in Luke. He's going to do the parable of the soils, the purpose of parables in uh Verses 9 through 10, go right to Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And he only has two parables, the parable of the soil and the parable 
of the lamp. So how does all this fit together? Well, when you look at the purpose of parables, Matthew 13 goes to Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Mark chapter 4 goes to Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. Luke chapter 8 goes to Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. So this is a crucial passage, and Jesus himself is explaining the purpose of parables to his disciples. And again, I take it, this is at the end, after he spoke to the crowds, gave four parables, and then he goes inside the house, and they begin to ask him for an explanation. Why do you speak to them in parables? And one of those, Matthew inserts earlier, right after the parable itself, and gives the explanation because he wants to highlight that particular one. So the purpose of parables, let's just review what we looked at last week. Verse 3, he told them many things in parables. One in particular, a sower went out to sow, he sowed the seed. Some seeds fell along the path. And I take this, if you look at the way... uh, Ancient fields were were landmarked. They didn't have fences. Remember, they had stones. You're told, don't move the stones. And so he would be walking away. There's a great debate um, looking at, did they plow first? Did they plow second? Um, uh, Passage in Isaiah said they plowed first. Uh, Passage in the Mishnah says, no, I don't know that that really affects here. But he's going along, and so paths through the fields people would pass and so as he gets near the edge and he's sowing all the field some of it's going to fly over there on the pass, the hardened pass where it's not going to uh, come to fruition and some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. They get that. Everybody understands that. This part of the parable. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. They didn't have much soil and immediately sprang up since they had no depth of soil. And the sun comes up, scorches them. Other seeds fell among thorns. I take it they're not out there with full-grown thorns. There's thorns still. The seeds or the roots are there. So when they begin to come up and they choke the good seed as it begins to come up. And they don't come to fruition. But other seeds fell on good soil, produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And so we have at the beginning, at the end, behold, and at the end, he who has ears, let him hear. This is the most important of the parables. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 4, if you don't get this one, you're not going to understand any of them. And then the disciples came and said to him, they asked the question, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answers, to you, it's very emphatic, it has been given. That's divinely granted the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now you can't soften this. You can't play it down. This is a divine sovereignty. And then Following that will be a parallel in Isaiah, going back to Isaiah chapter 6 of the parallel of human 
responsibility. To you disciples, it's been given to know the mysteries, but to them it has not been given. They understood the simple parable on one level, but what does this mean? What is the significance of this? Now I'm going to talk about a real debated issue here in terms of the parables and what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. Last week I told you what a mystery is in the New Testament. We went to Ephesians 3, 5 through 6. The mystery is not explained here in the text or the meaning of musterion. Some translate it as secrets. And so you have to flesh it out in, in, in the Bible. What are other occurrences and then bring it back to its context. And so I said New Testament mysteries are revelations and explanations of divine truth that were not revealed in the Old Testament but are now made known. There may be some seed beds there, but you're not going to know these except through divine revelation. We looked at Ephesians chapter 3. Jew and Gentile in one new community? You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. You will find that Jews are saved, you're there to be a means that Gentiles are to be saved, but them together in one new community, an ecclesia? No, Paul calls that a mystery. So, these are mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is this mystery? And it centers upon the kingdom. And so I'm going to quote here, from MacArthur, and then qualify this a little bit. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed ought to be understood in three dimensions, as a spiritual kingdom, right here. Now, not everybody agrees with this. A millennial kingdom, not everybody agrees with that. And an eternal kingdom, if almost all believers, regardless whether they're pre-mill, uh, A-mill or post-mill are going to recognize it deals with an, an eternal kingdom. Though it is invisible and spiritual in the present, it will one day be manifest as a physical earthly kingdom. In other words, what it's saying here, and this is not in agreement with what is called, if you're familiar with classic dispensationalism, they would say, no, there's nothing here of a spiritual presence of the kingdom. I will go why I disagree with that and show you a couple of texts that I... Uh, but the, the, the way I understand this is what Jesus is going to say, he's not denying the Old Testament promises of Psalm 2, that Jesus is going to come, Zechariah 14, he's going to come to earth, he's going to rule and reign. No, he's not qualifying that and saying that's not going to come, but he is giving a mystery, unveiled truth in the Old Testament that in fact there is a spiritual sense of the kingdom now. And Christ's kingdom is being advanced even now as sinners come to saving faith in him. They're trans Colossians 1.13, they're transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the realm of of the Son of God. And to follow Jesus Christ is to seek the expression and honor of his kingdom and his righteousness. Such 
is the spiritual and invisible sense of his kingdom. So I, as I go through these parables, I'm going to explain how I think that is reflected in these, in these parables. At the second coming, the king will establish his kingdom in a visible and temporal way here on earth. Being a premillennialist, I understand that the kingdom will last for a thousand years. I have studied under godly men who would teach me otherwise. I have great respect for those men. They are not my enemies. They're my friends. But my conscience is bound to Scripture in that regard. But now, though it's invisible and spiritual in the present, it will one day be manifest in an earthly kingdom. In his first coming, the king preached the good news of salvation, and consequently he established his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all who believe. In the present, the kingdom consists of all who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The king rules over and is resident in the hearts of those who belong to him. His kingdom advances one soul at a time. It will continue until he returns to establish his earthly reign followed by his eternal reign. How does a subject of Satan escape that tyrant and his realm and enter Christ's kingdom? Well, Jesus' answer has been very straightforward. You repent and you believe in the gospel. The king rules over and is resident in the hearts of those who belong to him. Now, let me show you evidence why I believe that is so. We, we looked at a number of instances as we were moving through where we saw this um, repent and believe. John the Baptist said it, Jesus said it at the beginning, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sometimes it's translated, has drawn near. It's a perfect tense. It means a past action with the present result. It doesn't mean it's here. It says it's near. It's near. You can look at a couple of texts, and how near is it? Well, you have to look at it in context. James, strengthen your hands. The, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Well, it's been 2,000 years since he wrote. And sometimes that is drawn near. Is It's an immediacy in the context. So it's near, it's near, it's near. Matthew 10, 7, he's proclaimed that. Now watch what changes in Matthew 12, 28. So go to Matthew 12, 28. The opposition is increasing, and Jesus says... They're denying, they can't deny what he's doing. They're seeing the demons being cast out. And they attribute it to satanic power. And Jesus in verse 28, this is a crucial statement in understanding the parables and the mysteries of the kingdom. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, now he, you will no longer find that phrase, the kingdom of God has drawn near, what you find here is, then the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. Now, some have pointed out, and I think rightly so, the verb fatano does not mean to be near. It means has arrived, especially with the preposition there, epi, it means it's arrived upon you. It's here. The king is here. And his kingdom. Well, who is in his kingdom? All who turn to him. Later on, he will make the statements to uh, the religious leaders and say, look, you guys are missing it. But even tax collectors and harlots are entering the kingdom of God before you. That is a present tense. Well, they're certainly not entering in what they expected of the kingdom from Old Testament expectations, so there is, there is this explanation here. Now, there's the evidence, what I consider for a present spiritual kingdom. It does not deny a future consummation. It means it has begun here, and for example, like the leaven, often the leaven has been interpreted as evil. No, it has different metaphors. It's growing, and it's going to receive its consummation, its completion, when Jesus returns again. It has begun now in this form and will be completed then. Now, I know not all of you agree with that. I have talked to uh, some of you, and this is my conviction on the matter. It's also called already but not yet in popular expression. The kingdom is here. It's been inaugurated by Jesus, but not yet in its completion and consummation when Jesus returns. That God would bring in his kingdom is no secret. All Jews look forward to it. The new truth now given to men by revelation and person and mission of Jesus is that the kingdom that is to come in power as foreseen by Daniel has in fact entered into the world in advance in a hidden form to mankind in general to work secretly within and among men. So that brings us then to the purpose of parables. In Matthew chapter 13, Why do you speak to them in parables? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Further explanation. For, the, for to the one who has, more will be given. You understand this truth, you're going to understand more truth. He'll have an abundance. But the one who does not have, who does not have this understanding, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables. And here it is. Because seeing, they don't see. They don't have spiritual eyes. Hearing, they don't hear. They don't have spiritual ears. And they don't understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. There's human responsibility. They close their eyes, lest they should see with their ears, eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6 to see how this fleshes out at the time of Isaiah. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 6 is most, if they're familiar at all with Isaiah, are familiar with the call and commission of Isaiah. And it begins this way, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So there's a chronological problem there well, when it evidently, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we begin in chapter 1, and it says this, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. In other words, what is clear here seems to be that Matthew has this vision, I will call it a theophany of God upon his throne. John chapter 12 says that this is Christ. This is Yahweh. Christ is Yahweh sitting upon a throne. Now that really boggles our mind trying to flesh out um, the, the triunity of God. And so Isaiah has this vision, and he's going to put it, he has it at the very beginning in the year that King Uzziah died, somewhere before Uzziah died, and then he's going to have this ministry of what he's doing, namely, keep go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Well, how does he do that, and why? So now we turn to, I'm taking the call and commission has happened at the beginning. He puts it after the first five chapters to emphasize what kind of people and what kind of people he had to go to. So here it is. That contemporary generation... Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up and brought up, they've rebelled against me. Oh, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, these are the people that Isaiah has to go to. And what does he say in verse 10? This, this is to, at first, Israel and Judah, but he is the prophet primarily to Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. 
Can you imagine calling the nation of Israel Sodom? Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's going to go through and review basically for them the Mosaic obligations, and there will be external, but nothing in the heart. And watch what he does. How does he make this people hard? Speak in riddles that they can't understand? No, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And here it is. This is making the people's heart dull when they've already hardened their heart and they hear this truth. What happens to them? Greater hardness of heart. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then we go over to the woes in, in chapter 5. There, there are six of them. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field. It's talking about getting rich at the expense of others. And verse 13, therefore the people are going to go into exile. We look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. And they say that their iniquity has bound them. It's like they're tied up and bound in sin. And at the same time, they say, we want to see the Lord quick. We want to see him speed. We we want to see the counsel of the Lord, but they refuse to repent of their sin. The third world, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're not the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, the nation of Israel today is a secular nation. But boy, do we see some of the realities here that what the nation of Israel was doing, we see in the deterioration of our own sinful nation and, and our leaders calling evil good and good evil. Verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Arrogance, pride. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Watch how much beer or liquor or whatever I, I, I can handle at a drinking party. And then all of this, now Isaiah, in light of all that, he goes back to his commission. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And what I saw was was the edge, the train of his temple, his robe, it filled the temple. And I saw seraphim, these burning things, they had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, and they're crying out to one another constantly, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. Kadosh means not only separate from sin, he is separate from his creation.
The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Now not woe for the nations. Now Isaiah says, the prince of Old Testament prophets, woe is me. I'm part of the problem. It's not just the nations. It's not just the nation of Israel. I'm part of the problem. I'm lost. I'm undone. I have unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What do we need today? How do you see the King, the Lord of hosts? You see him in Scripture. You see what Jesus is proclaiming. We're going to go there. That's what he is proclaiming. There's the King. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God at any time. But the only Son, the unique one, he has exegeted him. He has made him plain. He's made him clear. And to refuse him is to harden your heart. And when there's a chronic hardening of the heart, God may judicially harden the heart. And if he doesn't and we turn to him, there is a, that's grace and mercy. And we should bow down and thank him and worship him and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Just like Isaiah did. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He touched my mouth. How tender is that part? Your lips. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then we have this question. The first time Yahweh speaks here in 6 and says, He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Who's a forgiven person that's going to go out there? He says, Here am I. Send me. Okay. Here's what, here's, your, here's what your commission is. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but don't perceive. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to go to chapter 28. You, you should see how that line upon line, precept upon precept, over and over. It's kind of the drip method. Luther said it this way, their skulls are so thick, just take a hammer and pound it into them. That's what he's doing over and over again. He says, and if you, if you won't hear this, I'm going to tell you another nation is going to come with a strange language. It's going to be the Assyrians, and you're going to hear it from them line by line, precept upon precept. That's what he's doing. It's the same message. When Dr. Church spoke to us from Isaiah 55, we go past because all, not only will there be exile, but Isaiah also gives hope. And what, what do we find? Here's a message. How have you responded to this one? Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked man forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, forsake the way you think him. Let him return to Yahweh, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's the call. 
That's what Isaiah gave. And what was his generation like? No, we don't believe it. We're not going to respond. We want to see signs. One of the best treatments, Ray Ortland. Yahweh says, I want someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. Who might that be? Isaiah pipes up, how about me? And God says, go. God is fed up with Isaiah's generation. So he sends the prophet to tell them that they won't listen. It's a strange mission. His message might save and does save later generations, but not his own as a whole. Now, God always has a remnant. He always has a remnant. Time of the flood, how many was it? Pretty narrow, wasn't it? Eight. This... this a strange mission, his message would save later generations, but not his own, because God would use Isaiah's preaching to harden his contemporaries. The message is clear, repent and turn. Ray Ortland's right. This is not an easy truth to accept. And today, if preachers speak from Isaiah 6, they usually stop at the end of verse 8. But the authors of the New Testament quote verses 9 and 10 at least five times five times. It may be Isaiah's most frequently quoted verses in the New Testament. Why did the early Christians find those verses so meaningful? Because the young Christian movement was bitterly opposed for its gospel of grace, and the explanation for it stood right out here in these verses. What's the insight? Simply this. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, you come away from that exposure to his truth either a little closer to God or a little further away from God, either more softened toward God or more hardened toward God. But you are never the same. And if you think you can hold the gospel at arm's length in critical detachment, this very posture reveals that you're already deadened. The same truth enlivening some is also hardening others. And don't tell yourself that if only God would perform a miracle in your life, you would believe and open up. Jesus performed miracles, and the people who saw them only became further hardened. If God's Word isn't saving you, what will? What will? James 1.21 Receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What's the remedy when our very capacity to respond to God shuts down? The remedy for our deadness to God's grace is more grace. He giveth more grace. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13. There's, there's a, and so Jesus says that his, his ministry has a parallel 
to what Isaiah was called to do. And it's because of that generation. So Matthew, it, the, the opposition increases in chapters 11 and 12. Now watch what he does, Jesus does, in terms of the whole generation. 11 verse 16, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton. Look at 12, 38 and 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him after all that, and he showed them. A sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And then finally at the end of chapter 12, external change, cleaning up your act, is not what is required. What is required is an internal transformation of your heart by the Spirit of God. Or you'll be like verse 45. That evil spirit goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so Jesus was saying, just like in the days of Isaiah, he quotes that passage, here it is to the nation who ought to know better. There are some who respond but few, far in between, compared with the nation as a whole. And then verse 16. Ah, to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. If you're here this morning, and you have come to faith and trust in Christ, Jesus is saying this, you've got a set of spiritual eyes, you can see. You can see beyond just a sower sowing seed. You can see the condition of the heart. You can see what is needed is not only to decamai, to receive the word and to bring it in and believe it, but have it in your heart and to bear fruit, not temporary, not receive it because you like something temporary and then you fade away true Saving faith endures. It endures. We may stumble. We may fall. Jesus will get us back on our feet and we'll head forward. That's the point. Blessed are your eyes, they see, disciples, they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and they didn't see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So I ask you this morning, evaluate the condition of your heart. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Do you believe the good news and trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Do you have fruit as a result of your profession? 
How do the twin truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility affect your thinking and behavior and worship? When we experience difficult, grievous trials, how do we respond? Do we turn around and say, God, you're not good. You're not good or this would not have happened to me. Or I say, oh, in the pain of it all, you have designed specific grievous trials for me to change my character and to bring me into greater conformity to the image of your own dear son. And when we see a brother or a sister going through those grievous trials and they're struggling, we go along and we put our arm around them and we tell them we love you. I can't explain the sovereignty of God, but it's not outside of his control. And what we are to do is go around and have compassion and mercy upon one another and show that we are a people that truly loves God. For believers in Christ has a sense of privilege resulted in an increase in personal holiness and genuine gratitude to God? Does both the sovereignty of God and my human responsibility, if I'm responding correctly, what should it produce in my life? Grace takes on a new sense of amazement, of freshness. Why wasn't I born in Ashkelon, right on the border of Gaza? Those were a lot of young people there that Hamas came in and murdered them and their young people. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, that's a serious, it's a serious consequence. Why wasn't why was I born here in the United States? Why am I not like my father who was a drunkard and beat my mother? It's not because I'm brighter than the average person. It's the grace of God, the pure, matchless grace of God that he would cause the light of the gospel of the glory of God to shine in the heart. And the proper response is, here am I, send me, send me. We'll sing to that end as Jerry comes and leads us. <laughs>